18. This is God's word. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he, will, he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time. Then also my covenant with David my servant may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered, and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David my servant and the Levitical priests who minister to me. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not observed that these people are saying, the Lord has rejected the two clans that he chose? Thus they have despised my people, so that they are no longer a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord, if I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of David and of Jacob and David my servant, and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. We read that far in God's holy word. The theme again here in the second half of chapter 33 is the future restoration of Jerusalem. It's a dominant theme all through Jeremiah. Going all the way back to chapter 1, verse 10, as I've reminded you a few times, chapter 1, verse 10, where God gave six verbs to Jeremiah that are being played out throughout the book, to pluck up, to break down, and to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Jeremiah 1.10 After Jerusalem was destroyed and overthrown, it would then be rebuilt and planted. That's why Jeremiah's purchase of a field was an act of hope in the restoration that would definitely come to pass. So the theme here continues of blessings to the restored community after the exile, which hasn't happened yet. Uh, They will return home and they will possess the land. They'll possess the land. They've survived. They'll be home. But what about worship? The temple would have been destroyed. What about security? Some other army could come attack them again. They're going to need armies. Armies need kings. They need priests in order to worship. What about all this? If God brought the people back from exile, but they were kingless and without a priesthood, without a temple, they would not be fully restored and organized as the people of God. How much of a restoration, Lord, will you offer? It brings us to our main point in today's passage on your outline. Rely on God because he is reliable to fulfill all of his promises for restoration. Number one, to restore right status and behavior to people who did nothing right. Number two, to grant a future to families who do not deserve one. And number three, to provide an unbreakable covenant for people who broke everything. So number one, to restore right status and behavior to people who did nothing right. We're addressing now the issue of kingship. They'll come back home after exile, but will there be a king? 
Verse 14, the phrase, the days are coming, provides its usual comfort to us. It comforted the original readers as well. A well-known and classic phrase of God building up hope within his people. The days are coming is a signal to us to look forward uh, in hope because we can rely on this God. Verse 15 then, the promises about kingship are now addressed. God promised that a king would emerge in the line of King David. In contrast to the many wicked kings that Jerusalem had since David, this new king, God promises, will be a good one, a good king. He will stand up for what is right and fair. And it feels like the old dynasty of David himself will be restored. And the results would be huge. In verse 16, Judah will be saved, to put it bluntly. And to summarize it, Jerusalem will dwell securely, all because God will grant them a good king. In fact, the city will be called by a new name. They'll now be known by this. And the name, you see it there in verse 16. The name of the city is now the Lord our righteousness. You see it? They will finally become the city that is known for righteousness. That's what God intended all along. Verse 17, the upcoming dynasty is promised to be permanent. Listen to this permanent language in verse 17. Shall never lack a man to sit on the throne. And then the same will be true for the worship leaders, the priests who will enjoy a valid ministry permanently and perpetually as we read the Lord's own words of promise again in verse 18 with regard to the priests. Shall never lack a man in my presence to make sacrifices forever. So the people who did nothing right can count on God to restore them anyway, even with regard to kingship, priesthood, and temple. So we move to our second point, to grant a future to families who don't deserve one. Verses 19 to 21, God provides an astute comparison. Uh, Since God the Creator has been faithful to uphold the whole creation's system for people who do not deserve it worldwide, then God could uphold his new covenant promises to people who do not deserve it. Yes, God said that if the promise God made regarding day and night could not be broken, or could be, if it could be broken, that is, the fixed cycle we know of as day and night, if that could be altered, then God's covenants with David and the Levites could be broken. He's tying his redemptive promise to his faithfulness in the created order. He's saying, who's been able to stop day and night? So therefore, who will be able to stop my blessing my people in the new covenant? He's referring all the way back to Genesis 1.5. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. God is referring to his own words. He's referring back to his own actions. He's referring to not only the creation, but his sustaining of that creation ever since. And also, after the destruction of sinners by a worldwide flood in Genesis 7, God renewed his promise to uphold the whole creation system in Genesis 8.22. Listen, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease, Genesis 8.22. Or to say it another way, since the fixed cycle of sun and moon in rotation has not been altered, so also God's new covenant with his people will not be altered. But wait, what about sin? 
Isn't that the whole reason for the exile? Because the people wouldn't stop sinning? Decades of preaching of Jeremiah warning and they didn't stop sinning, so God sent them off into exile or would. To stop the cycle of day and night is impossible for man to do and to stop the blessings of the new covenant is impossible for man to do. Sin as they might, they cannot stop God from pouring out his blessings on his people and he will need to deal with sin another way. In verse 22, there's a beautiful reference to the countless stars and the countless grains of sand on all the seashores around the world. And that fact is used as further evidence to support God's faithfulness and God's reliability to his ancient promise to Abraham. Is this not an immediate clue to us, a reminder of God's promise to Abraham to have innumerable descendants, as many as the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on all the seashores? The same idea, watch it now, of the innumerable descendants is now applied additionally and beautifully to the offspring of David in verse 22 and to the number of Levitical priests. This is beautiful how God is tying his created work and then his promises to Abraham and his governance of all those promises and he's adding to it that the offspring of David and the Levitical priests will be included. God's point is that his reliability to grant future sinful families blessings they do not deserve belongs to God and his power as creator and as redeemer. It brings us to our third point to provide an unbreakable covenant for people who broke everything. Verses 23 and 24, God now asked a question to Jeremiah. Remember, Jeremiah was made not just a prophet to Judah and Israel, but a prophet to all the nations. Is Jeremiah up on the news? Is Jeremiah aware of how people are talking? Is Jeremiah aware of God's reputation in the nations? Is he aware that people were saying about his God that God had rejected his own people? God rejected the two clans, Israel and Judah? Think of it. As I said to you before, if a drone was flying over Jerusalem that day, you'd see it circled by the armies of Babylon getting ready to attack. Other nations were already assuming that God, therefore, had rejected his own people. So other nations were starting to look down on God's people and no longer considered God's people to be a nation. That's God's saying to Jeremiah in verses 23 and 24. Is Jeremiah aware of this? that God's reputation is getting tarnished among the nations. Do you see it, Jeremiah? God has an answer for that. God wants to address his reputation among the nations. And so verses 25 and 26 is God's answer. One more set of references of God to himself as creator and sustainer and therefore reliable. Because God has both created and has kept the fixed order of heaven and earth with all of its orbits and all of the rotations, then God can keep his new covenant promises to his own people. Let that be the message that's sent to the nations. God was still upholding his promises. You see how he references here Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? God is saying, I'm still upholding my promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm still upholding my promises to Noah and David. I'm still upholding my promises to Levi. And I have every intention of upholding my promises to those Jerusalem citizens in Jeremiah's day who are encircled by the Babylonian enemy who are themselves at this moment soon to be exiles. I have every intention of upholding my promises to them 
to bring them back from exile, and I'm saying it to you before they even go into exile. This is what's going to happen. They're going to go into exile, they're going to be there 70 years, and I'll bring them home, and I'll give them a king and a priest and a temple. Any questions? That's God's answer to the nations. Watch me. Watch me do this. You think I gave up on my people. Watch this. What is God's promise to his people? The last sentence of verse 26 shows that God never grows tired of comforting his people because he again repeats it in verse 26. I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. That's our passage. What's the lesson? What is God saying to Jeremiah? What's he saying through Jeremiah to his people? What's he saying to the nations and down to us? That in spite of what appeared to be a hopeless situation, Jeremiah in jail, the city of Jerusalem surrounded by the Babylonian army gearing up to destroy the city, despite all of that, God announces the restoration of the people from exile. How can we believe in this God? Because he's the one who keeps the stars in their places and keeps the promises he made based on those stars being in their places. It's the God who promised to Abraham, whom he mentioned here, that he would have descendants as numerous as those stars. The God who created those stars not only sustains those stars and keeps them in place, he not only numbers them, but he has names for each of them. Psalm 147.4, he determines the number of the stars, and listen, he gives to all of them their names. So you can go on the internet and find a place that, for the low, low price of, will let you name a star, but it's not its name. God already named it. Don't waste your money. It completes our study of the passage, and what does it mean for Christ, and what does it mean for us? Our passage addresses a huge and nagging question. How can the new covenant have better success than the old covenant? Isn't this the same God saying things that sound a lot like what the same God has said in the past to his people? Isn't all of this what God previously promised in passages such as 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16? You know, the part about David's throne being secure forever. But then look what happened. And look what happened after that. Consider the tension within Jeremiah's own preaching. On the one hand, what Jeremiah had been preaching ever since the famous temple sermon in Jeremiah chapter 7, in which he's preaching to persuade the people what they thought was permanent isn't so permanent. You know, the temple, the priesthood, God's promises. You think this is so permanent you can just go right on sinning? Careful. It's not as permanent as you think. God could bring it all down, destroy it all, and bring you into exile. That's his message in Jeremiah 7. But consider what he's saying now in chapter 33, and how do you hold these in tension? What's in jeopardy is because of their disobedience, but on the other hand, he's preaching the new covenant is now permanent despite their disobedience. In Jeremiah 7, he's preaching warning, and in Jeremiah 33, he's preaching unqualified reassurances of hope in the future. Warning or hope in the future? Destruction because of disobedience or salvation despite disobedience? How do you hold these together? And the question in our passage is, to put it bluntly, can we in fact rely on this God to fulfill these promises of the new covenant? 
What makes God's promise reliable is not some newfound obedience for the people that off in exile, they had time to think, and as they were eating scraps in jail off in a foreign land, they somehow came to their senses and they repented and their obedience came so amazingly around that God blessed them based on their obedience. That's not the gospel. That's not what God's saying at all. It's not what happened. What makes God's promise reliable is not some new obedience found in the people. What makes God's promise secure is not that people somehow would learn their lesson and start doing what's right and then be rewarded by this God for doing what's right. No, I've got news for you. After the exile, they were just as bad sinners as they were before the exile. The people did nothing right before or after. The people were hard-hearted after the exile. The new covenant demands that people obey, and they can't obey. So the question is, how can we rely on this God to fulfill these promises when the people are just as bad as ever? And here's the answer. In the new covenant, God provides the obedience he demands. He provides the righteousness he demands. Sure, God fulfilled in history these external promises of restoration from exile. The people returned, the people rebuilt, the whole story of Ezra and Nehemiah and the communities that were established there. However, they were still sinners, and later those communities too were destroyed. Here, God is referring back to before all of it. He's referring back to his promises to Noah, his promises to Abraham, and his actions in the created order and is upholding his created order ever since then. God's reaching back to his promises that predate kingship, that predate priesthood, that predate the city of Jerusalem and the land itself. God is is making promises here and referring back to what he decided to do before he created the world in the first place. During the exile, God was saying, kingship, yes, but not in the form you're thinking of it. Priesthood, yes, of course, but not in the form you're thinking of it. A temple, yes, but not in that form. Land, yes, but think higher. Think more long term. God is promising here things that sound familiar to them. The promises of King David, the priesthood on Levi. But he's talking about longer-lasting priesthoods than Levi, more beautiful than that stone temple, second rebuilt, more secure than that land and that city with that king and that army. What makes God's promise secure is God. And that God's commitment to provide what is needed is the obedience of another on your behalf because you can't do it. What makes God's promise secure is his future fulfillment through his Messiah. The hints are here. Chapter 2, verse 13, the fountain of living waters. Chapter 23, 5, a righteous branch. Chapter 31, 10, the shepherd who keeps his flock. And here, all the references to David and Levi and the priests. These prophecies are later fulfilled, of course, and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who died in the city of sinners with the prophetic title, 
the Lord our righteousness, when he alone deserved that title. Not the city of sinners. The whole nation of God's people will need to undergo a cocoon to butterfly transformation. Remember how Israel went down to Egypt of travelers there and God made them into a nation great, mighty, and populous, Deuteronomy 26.5. The nation of God's people was to last even longer than the kingship, even longer than the priesthood itself. It would morph. In the New Testament church, the fulfillment starts to take new shape that God has planned a new people of God, a new temple with new kings and new priests headed into a new land, a permanent land of heaven itself. Even the possession of the land had been a dream from which people would one day awaken. All from every nation would turn to this God in repentance and faith and would be welcomed into his nation, welcomed into his people group, welcomed into his family, into his church, into his temple, into his kingship and priesthood by faith in his Messiah. Do you see the beauty? The book of Jeremiah demands a sequel. (laughs) And it begins with the Gospel of Matthew. The very first verse of the sequel, Matthew 1, 1, the very first verse of the New Testament, the fact that Jesus came from the line of King David is confirmed. Listen to it. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. What are we in? Nine words and it's already confirmed? Also in Matthew 1, 6, King David is listed. In Matthew 1, 16, at the conclusion of the genealogy, we read this, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. It kind of looks nice and neat and tidy, doesn't it? It almost seems like God planned it before the foundation of the world and revealed it to us in time, in beauty. The creator, who's also the redeemer, saying, I've got this. The new covenant, believe it. God announced the coming of his son with a star in the sky. Matthew 2.2. 2. Fast forward to Jesus died as our king under a cross that read, Hail, King of the Jews, John 19, 2 and 3. You know that notice was written in three languages and recorded in all four Gospels, despite the religious leaders saying, no, 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 don't write it that way. Oh, yes, it'll be written that way, because that's the truth. To this day, the risen Christ sits as king on the throne of David. He's also the king of the city of God, the New Jerusalem. He's an eternal monarch, and he will reign and will never fail us. Jerusalem came to be the home of the New Testament Christianity. And the Apostle John in those early years wrote how the earthly Jerusalem symbolized the church, just as the heavenly Jerusalem will be our home. Revelation 21.2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. What made Jerusalem at one time a city full of sinners, so full of sinners they needed to be destroyed and brought off into exile? What made that city be able to be declared a holy city? was Jesus, the root of David, the offspring of David, Revelation 21, 16. What God makes promises secure in is not our behavior changing, not the exiles learning finally. What makes God's promises secure is only Jesus Christ, 
the recipients of the new covenant, are obligated to live holy lives. But we can't do it in our own strength. We can only plead the holiness of Christ to become ours by faith in him. We call it an alien righteousness, that his outside-of-us righteousness is given to us whole hog as a new report card so that it has my name on it and it has all A's. And it was his work. This is the righteousness of Christ and the, the plan of God. The Ephesians 5.27 puts it this way, Christ gave himself up for the church so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Both the exile and the restoration at Jerusalem and the death and resurrection of Christ at Jerusalem picture the main point here. We can rely on this God, the creator, sustainer, redeemer God, We can rely on him because he's reliable to fulfill all of his promises. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. 1 Peter 1, 15, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. 1 Peter 1, 15. We're called to be witnesses to the world. The watching nations of the world witness what the church is that God has not given up on his people despite our sin and struggle and wrong. God has made Jerusalem holy. God has made his church holy. Because Jesus is holy, and he gave us his holiness as a new covenant gift. You're not holy on your own. We are given Christ's justifying righteousness. He achieved the righteousness in his life, and in his death he cleansed us of our unrighteousness and gave us his record. What about the permanence promised by God? It's also fulfilled in Christ, as the Apostle John put so memorably that we've put this into song, haven't we? Revelation eleven fifteen: The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. There's the permanence. And one more, in Romans 4, the whole chapter is devoted to God's relationship to Abraham that has been mentioned here. With regard to the promise of the descendants as many as the stars, here's Romans 4.21. Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Is that you? Are you fully convinced that God is able to do with this fledgling church what he has promised to do? In Christ Jesus. So that's our study. We rely on God because He's reliable to fulfill all the promises for restoration, restore right status and behavior to people who did nothing right, to grant a future to families who don't deserve one, and to provide an unbreakable covenant for people who broke everything. And here's our application it's very simple. Rejoice that you can rely on God. Rejoice that you can rely on God. Did the troubles of this life and the strange era in which we are living? ever cast doubt on God's abilities to you? They ever cast doubt on God's promises for you? You ever fear that God has failed you personally or us? I have good news for you. The clear message of the book of Consolation, chapters 30 to 33, the clear message of our passage can be summarized in one word. Rejoice. That's our response to the fact that God is reliable. To console us, 
God had Jeremiah write down this passage that we studied today to remind us to rejoice because we can count on God. If all you do is take your theology from the newspaper, you're going to be quite discouraged. If you take your theology from passages like this, you will be encouraged because you know God never fails. King David failed. Every Old Testament priest failed. Every Old Testament prophet failed, including our own beloved Jeremiah. The people of God failed. Everyone living in Jerusalem failed. Even the New Testament church failed. Everyone in this room, including yours truly, has failed. However, we don't look there for our rejoicing. We look up to the creator, sustainer, and redeemer, and every time we see a sunrise, every time we see a sunset, every time we have the opportunity to see the stars at night, you know as a reminder from Scripture reference that God is faithful to us and we can count on him. And because of his reliability, we are part of a large family of God heading home to a new Jerusalem. The Apostle John wrote how those stars and the grains of sand, every time you're on the beach, think of the blessings of God. The grains of sand are so numerous And it's fulfilled, as John writes in Revelation 7, 9, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, listen, that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Revelation 7, 9. Not only was the promise to Abraham fulfilled, the promise to the exiles was fulfilled And when Jesus was marching into Jerusalem, when he enacted it all, and those palm branches were laid down for them, that was a dress rehearsal. Because he who died for us rose again, and the palm branches are yet ahead of us. We will all be able to lay down palm branches as a reference to our joy that Christ is our king. He's the king of all nations. He's the king of all history. He's the king of all things. And we love it that way. We welcome our King Jesus because we know we can rely on him, we can count on him, and we rejoice that we can rely on Christ. Let's pray.